chapter 18. We're going to start chapter 18 this morning. Ripping through the book of Acts. <laughs> Not exactly. A little bit of background. Uh, in chapter 17, where we finished up, uh, Paul had been in Athens uh, addressing the Areopagus, a council of, of philosophers, really. Uh, Epicureans and Stoics, were told. Uh, men who spent their time hearing every new thing, <laughs> were, said, were told. And, and so he spoke to them on his way up the Areopagus. The, I mean, we talked about Athens was just a, a bastion of idol worship. I mean, more idols than people in the, in the city. 3,000 altars, statues, all that. He sees a statue to the unknown God on his way up to the to, uh, up Mars Hill. Uh, and so he begins to speak to the people there, and he talks about the, this unknown God being above all of their gods, <laughs> and that he's the creator. He's all-powerful. And it's a beautiful thing that, that Paul speaks. We'll talk about some issues there. But he... he lays this whole thing out that, that God had not only created all things, but he upholds, he directs all things, which flew in the face of what they believed, because they believed that if God existed, remember we looked at last week, that he kind of kicked the, the world into existence and let it just go, and he's not involved in the affairs of man. And Paul contradicts all of that, which would have gotten them, you know, I, I picture them, you know, maybe stroking their beards a little bit, because that wasn't what they believed, and that wasn't the foundation of their pagan belief system. And so he's challenging them. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he subtly submits to them that, look, these are not real gods that you're worshiping at all. They're demons. They're demonic presence. We looked at the, the Greek word, the way that that's constructed there, is he uses the same root word for for demons. And, and so... He's got their attention, and he goes on. He talks about God is, uh, yeah, he's he's involved in the affairs of man. He's created man in his own image, and then he challenges them. He says, "Look, if because God has created man in His image, how is it that you justify in your own mind reducing God and man to a bunch of nifty little trinkets, idols?" Uh, because if that's the case, it, what you're doing doesn't make any sense. And, and so he, he challenges that. He, they essentially were reducing God. And, and you know, folks, that's what the world does. It's, if I don't like God as he is, well, then I'm just going to create my own. And I call it God in my back pocket. I'm going to create my own God, and I'm going to stick him in my back pocket. I'm going to pull him out whenever I want to make a point. And that is not <laughs> the God that we worship and that we serve. So... He goes on with these guys, and the moment that he brings up Jesus' resurrection from the dead, they dismissed him. They said, enough, uh, essentially. They, they said, well, we'll hear you more on this matter. Uh, in other words, we're all done for now. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in a business meeting where they politely closed the meeting. Well, they politely closed the meeting, and they were done. But uh, a couple of people came to faith in Christ, and, and there was a little bit of fruit. Not what I think Paul expected. He never got a chance to get to speaking to them of the cross. We'll look at that as we go. So overall, I personally, and I'm getting into interpretation here. This is an opinion. 
<laughs> it's not what the word says, but I believe that it's supported. Uh, it's one opinion that could be supported here that I think that Paul was significantly affected by what happened at Athens. Uh, I believe that it, he's learning himself. He is going through these things. And we're going to look at that too. We're going to look at the fact he's not bulletproof. And that as he's learning and he's growing and he's maturing in his own understanding, his own walk, this was new stuff for him. He just knew that he had this, this, this compulsion inside to go and to spread the gospel. And that he knew that God had called him to it. He knew it from the moment he was there blinded on the road to Damascus. And God said, I'm going to do this. And by the way, you're going to suffer. So he's carrying out his ministry. And I believe that being dismissed after he gave this brilliant philosophical argument for God to the Athenians on Mars Hill, and that they just dismissed him out of hand, that 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 affected him. So it was about a 50-mile trip from Corinth, or from Athens over to Corinth, uh, due west. We're going to look at that too. Uh, But I I can't help but think that it was probably a time of deep reflection for Paul. Uh, We get some hints of that. In 1 Corinthians, and we'll talk about that too as we go. In in chapter 18, verse 1, we read, After these things, the things that that took place in Athens, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now, we're not exactly sure why Paul left Athens for Corinth. Uh, Perhaps it was to look for work. We're told right after he gets there, he starts looking for work. Remember, he left Silas and Timothy up in Berea, and he came to Athens by himself. We don't know what his means of support was at that time. We know that he definitely starts, he hits the ground running in Corinth. Uh, So it could have been that. Uh, Luke tells us that, and we'll look at it here in just a moment, that he starts to look for work. Uh, We do know that this was a difficult, a particularly difficult time for the Apostle Paul We know that in his first missionary journey that he had probably contracted malaria there in the lowlands of Asia Minor that we, when we looked at that, uh, we know that he was sick, significantly ill, we can assume. Uh, We know that, that he had suffered a great deal as he went about the work of fulfilling his ministry. Uh, Not only physically sick, but he had been brutally beaten, drug out of town, left for dead. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been hunted down, chased out of town on a number of occasions. I mean, every time this guy opens his mouth, he's kind of getting accustomed to the fact that things are going to happen and they're not going to be good. But he's got to do it. He's got to fulfill his ministry. Uh, So on top of that, I also think, too, that he must have had ongoing concerns for the churches. We're told in a number of places that the reason why he circles back is because he wanted to go and to make sure and, and to shore up the work that had already been done. And so he keeps going and revisiting churches and, and he couldn't do that. We saw that a couple of weeks ago where when, after he leaves Thessalonica, he goes to Berea and he wants to go back to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered him. Remember that? We looked at that. He says that in First Thessalonians. So He couldn't go back. He ended up going south to Athens. And yet his concern would remain. He wanted to be sure, especially with the persecution that they immediately ran into 
in Thessalonica. They remember they had to sneak him out of town in the middle of the night. And then they chase him to Berea and they have to take, he has to take off, leave the guys there to take care of the church. He goes to Athens. So he's been going through it. This is a tough period for him. Like I said, we read this. It doesn't talk about his emotional state, but you got to assume he's, he's just a man. He's not a superman. And, and that he's, these things have to be taking a toll on him. And we'll see that in the text as we go, because God has some things to say to him uh, here as he begins the ministry in Corinth. So uh, the other thing is that he wouldn't know how these churches were doing because Silas and Timothy, he left them there in the middle of the persecution. He, he didn't know if they were alive or dead. He had no idea what was going on with the churches. He wouldn't know that they were doing really well until Silas and Timothy arrived and uh, and let him know that the, the ministry there had been hugely successful. And it had been, but he's again, he doesn't know that at this point. So it's possible also that when Paul went to Corinth that it was in keeping with his plan. He had been developing a plan to go to major population centers because there he could plant the seeds of the gospel and then see it disseminated to the surrounding regions. That's what he did when he went to Thessalonica, which is the capital city of uh, Macedonia. And now Corinth is the capital city of Achaia, which is the southern province of Greece. Uh, sort of a, a large landmass, kind of an island area. We'll, we'll look at that. The Peloponnese is what it's called. Uh, but it could have been that. So regardless, here he is. He's in Corinth. It's the capital city. It's a major city of the Roman Empire. It had a population uh, of 10 times, at least 10 times that of Athens. Athens, remember, it's about 500 years after Athens' heyday, after its zenith as a, as a, a world city. Uh, it was indefinitely in decline by the first century. And so he, he may have just moved because there's a larger population center there. He could find work. He could evangelize all of that. So evidently, well, I think we could safely assume it was God's design because we get a great deal of information in the New Testament because he went to Corinth. Athens had uh, continued to be, again, a, a, a center for culture, education and all. But Corinth was different. It was, a, it was a major crossroads for trade and for politics and for travel. Uh, because of its location on the Isthmus of Corinth, and we'll look at a map in a couple of minutes, um, it was also a strategic Roman military installation in that regard as well. The Romans knew that that was a place, it was a choke point. And so they positioned military assets there too. So um, all of that's true. I mean, logistically, we can look at Corinth and I could continue to give you logistics. I mean, it was a, a probably 200,000 people. I read different books uh, and... Uh, the range is anywhere between 100 and 300,000 people. Again, fourth largest city at that time in the Roman Empire. So this isn't a small town. And, but all of that said, the, the thing that was probably most noteworthy about Corinth, above industry and politics, architecture, remember we talk about Corinthian columns, that's where that came from, was the city's immorality. Corinth was a cesspool, morally. 
Uh, it was an exceedingly wicked city. It was so sinful that calling in that day, if you called someone a Corinthian, that wasn't a compliment. Uh, it was an insult. It was the same as calling them a pervert or a drunk. Oh yeah, that person is just a Corinthian. Yeah, that's, that wouldn't be a great, I mean, I wouldn't want that to be like Newberg's reputation. But <laughs> you gotta realize too, uh, pagan worship was, it was the thing. It was the norm in the Roman Empire. In the middle of Corinth, there was a 1700 foot plateau. Uh, and it was called the Acro-Corinthus. Uh, this is interesting. And on top of this plateau were a number of government buildings, but there was also a huge temple, pagan temple there. It's called the Temple of Aphrodite, or Aphrodite, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, also the Temple of Venus, because remember the Greeks had their pantheon of gods and the Romans had theirs. And so they had just, they had, they, it was kind of weird because they borrowed back and forth. Well, the Temple of Venus was the same as the Temple of Aphrodite. And it was the, who was in both cultures, the goddess of sexuality and, uh, and fertility. Uh, and these people really took that to, they, they, they did a lot. Uh, it was the, the birthplace of a lot of, of hugely immoral practices. Uh, in this temple, it, it, every night, uh, there would be uh, hundreds, and in many accounts I read said over a thousand uh, temple priestesses, which were essentially prostitutes, that would come down out of the the temple of Aphrodite up on this Acrocorinthus, and they would come down into the city and ply their trade. That was daily life. That was the accepted norm. And I, I can't help as I read this and I study these things out, I look at our culture today and I think, look at what's becoming accepted. Look at what's, what, what is being peddled every day. I, I told Stace last night, we were looking at you know, some news thing, and I said, you know, every day it's some new weird deal. Every day it's some new perverse practice that's being promoted, not only promoted, but celebrated. I mean, the things that are being done with children, are, I, I, and I, again, I don't want a rabbit trail, but it's absolutely horrid. Well, you look at what's going on in our culture, you look at what's going on in Corinth, and if you understand and you have that angst, you could understand what Paul was seeing when he showed up in Corinth and he saw all of the stuff going on. It was a, it was a cesspool. And yet, and yet, God had called them there. I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, Corinth is kind of like the Las Vegas of the first century. It's like, yeah, what happens in Corinth? Yeah, no, it's pretty bad. So also that's something that's interesting is during his third missionary journey, uh, this is the end of his second, this is the last city in his second journey. Now he'll stop at Ephesus, but only for a short time. And then he'll head back to Israel. Um, but when he goes to Corinth during his third missionary journey, he writes a letter to the church at Rome. And I think it's really interesting uh, because as he, as he is there in Corinth and writing this letter to the church at Rome, uh, and I think it's pretty easy to see why from his vantage point, uh, his writings in the first three chapters of Roman totally spell out the utter sinfulness and depravity of man. 
And I, I have to think that as he reflected on the moral bankruptcy of this culture that was around him, surrounded, he's immersed in this thing, that, that he is reminded and he writes about it with great clarity and great detail. I read Romans 1, 1 through, I think it's 320. I call it the great indictment. And it's where Paul writes about man's condition apart from God. And he's seeing that, he's living that here as he gets to Corinth. Something else that's interesting about this is that the Corinthian church would give Paul an enormous number of challenges. Um, they would become factious. They would, they would be dividing. And you read 1 Corinthians and uh, it's essentially a church that's a mess. Uh, they had a carnal approach to life. Paul was continually addressing those things. Now, we'll see here too that he spends about a year and a half, 18 months, probably somewhere in about AD 50 or 51. And uh, he had little outside opposition as Christianity would begin to gain a foothold in the region. So uh, with that, just as an intro, <laughs> better get moving here. Um, I have about, I have four maps and a couple of photos I want to show you. Let's look at the first map. And this shows now the green line coming in from the right where it says Troas. That was the last city in Asia that Paul and um, Silas and Timothy, that's where they met Luke, remember? And then they got on the boat. They had the Macedonian call and, and they went from there up to Philippi. And that's when they went through the whole thing and they got beaten with rods and thrown into jail and Paul challenged the leaders of the city. And when they left Philippi, they left Luke there, traveled over to Thessalonica. That's where they ran into the trouble there. They they saw a great, in each of these cities, they saw a great move of God. I mean, the spirit was being poured out and many souls were being saved. Many people were giving their lives to Christ. So it's not that this was just opposition, but there was always significant opposition that went along with. And so in Thessalonica, as I mentioned, he has to leave. They have to hustle him out of town in the middle of the night because they're trying to kill him. <laughs> they got a crowd together. Uh, and then he goes to Berea and, and from there, about 350 miles south to Athens. Now the red line that I show here in the second map, will zoom up on it. And that is the distance, or that's the, how far he would travel to go from Athens to go over to Corinth. Now, if you'll notice in, in the second slide here, uh, I have Corinth and then Sincrea down below that. There's a small strip of land. You see that there's the uh, Adriatic Sea on the top and then the Aegean Sea on the bottom. Well, there's a small strip of land that separates those two seas. Now, I don't show it here, but there was a place, it was this hole on the left where Corinth is. That's like a large, huge island. It's called the Peloponnese. And, and that was the main area, the main geographical area of Achaia, which is the province that Athens and Corinth were in. Uh, but Corinth is separated from the landmass of Europe by this little strip of, it's connected by the strip of land. Now, if I, we want to zoom up to, to map three here, there's this, this is called the Isthmus. And an Isthmus, is like the Isthmus of Panama, you have North America on one side and South America on the other side. And the only way that you could sail, if you don't use the canal, 
The only way you could do is go all the way around the entire continent of South America. Well, the only way that you could do this, if it wasn't anywhere near as far, uh, is if they didn't use... Now, there wasn't a canal in the first century. I'll get to that in a second. But uh, it was about 490-mile trip by boat uh, around the Peloponnese if they didn't take... And what they did in those days in the first century was they would take small ships take them and put them on logs and they would roll them. It was about four miles across this isthmus. All right. Now, now just for contrast, it's about 120 miles across for the Panama Canal. But here, uh, it was a small, narrow strip of land. And so they would roll the boats across. If it was larger ships, they would unpack them and then t- carry the cargo over land and then put them on another ship to go on about uh, their trip. But that made Corinth a significant center for commerce. It was a huge city, and it was part of it, a great deal of it, was because of, there were two seaports. There was one at Corinth and one at Sancria. And that was how they connected those out. Now, the other thing, too, when we talk about the Peloponnese, there was, they had winter shipping lanes that, Cape Malia is at the bottom of it, and that was, it was, a treacherous, uh, treacherous area. So again, they had incentive to build up their seaports here in this section because they, it was just, they, they were losing a lot of boats. So this four mile isthmus played a, a major role in Corinth, uh, being the city that it was. It was also very much a blue collar city. You know, Athens, not so much. Athens, more white collar, more aristocratic, more, uh, you know, the education and, and all of that. Uh, Corinth, you know, it was, it was kind of the party town. It was the place where you went if you, you know, were a sailor and you wanted to have some time off and all of that. So uh, a whole different culture. And that's the point I want to make. Interestingly, Julius Caesar, 100 years before, uh, as well as Caligula, a few years before, these different emperors in, in Rome, uh, and then also Nero, after these times, all three of those emperors wanted to build a canal across the Sismus. They saw the value of it. But Roman emperors had a bit of a problem. They didn't have a very good lifespan. <laughs> Julius Caesar got assassinated uh, when I was in Rome, I went to the spot where he took the knife or the blade. Uh, and uh, that was just an interesting, they have it marked off in this whole ruins thing. Uh, Caligula uh, also um, was assassinated. Uh, then Nero, and now Nero wasn't assassinated. He, and he comes after this. I mean, he's the emperor when Paul is executed. Uh, and sets up a huge persecution in the church, and get to that another time. But, but Nero, he went nuts. He lost his mind, and uh, I mean, he got into some really weird, weird stuff. I mean, uh, there was a, an account I was reading about that he married some young boy because he reminded him of his wife, and it's like, I thought, oh my goodness, that sounds like today's headlines. But <laughs> the point is. Nero, the, the Roman Senate, they voted him out, and so he went off and committed suicide. All of these guys wanted to build a canal, but none of them lived long enough to do it. 
So a canal wasn't built here, uh, not until, I think it was what, uh, I, think I have the date down there somewhere. At any rate, it wasn't built until 1893. Um, let me see here, slide three. All right, the, the fourth slide shows the canal here. Uh, if you see, if you, I'm not sure how clear that is, but there's a thin blue line that connects the two. Now, it's not a very good canal. Large ships can't, they can't do much in it. Let's go to slide five. Uh, that's, this is the Corinth Canal today. Uh, it's deep and rocky. Uh, if you understand nautical terms, it's called draft and beam. The beam is how far across, uh, how far across a ship is. Okay, and this can only handle a ship with a maximum beam of 58 feet, which is not very big when you're talking about big ocean freighters. So here it shows a, a, a cruise boat. Uh, also, the draft is very shallow. 24 feet was the maximum draft. That's how, how much water a boat can sit in before it scrapes the bottom and you have a mess. So uh, the canal is there today, but it, it, it can't handle modern shipping, but... Uh, it's there nonetheless. This last photo shows some ruins at Corinth. There's some beautiful ruins that still exist. And Corinth is still a very large city. It's a, it's still an industrial area. All right. So verse two, I'm going to move on here, get finished with the travel log here. Um, but I, you know, I, I love to show you guys this stuff because I want you to understand, it's always important to me that you understand that you locate these things in your mind. These are real places. And these are real events. I mean, these are things that are provable and, and observable. And, and so I, I like to use media. And, and frankly, I have a lot of fun digging around looking for slides that I want to use. But, but I, I like using that because it helps us to understand the area and, and the region and the culture that we're looking at. So verse two, it says, he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So Paul locates these people. Um, we can We can reasonably assume that Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians that had traveled there. Uh, we don't know how they came to Christ, but we can assume that because it's not, there's not a big evangelistic push here. Um, Paul finds them, he approaches them, uh, and they would, as time went on, they would become a great help to the Apostle Paul. Uh, they would become part of his ministry. Now we're told here that Aquila was a man from Pontus. Now that's a Roman province. Remember we looked at in Asia that we looked at Bithynia which is north, it would be northern Turkey now, while Pontus is just next to that. So he had come from a region far away. Uh, don't know how he met Priscilla, but um, it's interesting. Uh, he's a Jewish guy. Priscilla's not. She's a Roman. Uh, half the mentions or more in the New Testament where Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned uh, her name is mentioned first. And that's unusual because these guys were very patriarchal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, it was usually the man and then the woman. Well, like I said, over half the places is Priscilla and Aquila. Now, there's, we get a bit of a hint 
from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, uh, Paul asked Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila. Now we have to assume that that's the same couple. Priscilla is a diminutive form of Prisca, which is one of the wealthiest families in Rome. Very well known, very well healed, you know, <laughs> high in the social standing. And she was probably somehow related to this family. And, and I got to thinking about that. What a great love story it would be to, to, to find out, you know, and we won't until we get to heaven, that here, you know, this wealthy Roman woman falls in love with a Jewish itinerant tent maker and spends the rest of her life serving the Lord Jesus. I mean, what a great story that would end. We don't know, but uh, we can assume that she had a prominent name and that's why her name comes up first. So now the other thing too, it talks about Claudius here, the emperor. He was the emperor from uh, about 41 to 54 uh, the date of the expulsion of the Jews is probably around 49. And, and again, this is 50 or 51. So it wouldn't have been that long after uh, when Aquila and Priscilla had to leave Rome. They got ejected and they ended up locating in Corinth. Again, probably because they needed to make a living. It's a large city. It would have been fairly easy to access from Rome. A lot of Roman roads and all of that. So The other thing I think is interesting about Priscilla and Aquila is wherever this couple went, I I got, again, in my preparation, I just had some fun searching through the the New Testament and looking at the different accounts where they're mentioned. And every time you see them, they're just serving the Lord with their heart. They have servants' hearts. And they're used by God. They establish a house church here in Corinth. They also establish a house church in Ephesus. And then they establish a house church when they return back to Rome after Claudius dies. So these people just love the Lord. They just love to serve him. They were very hospitable. They would open their home and the church would be attracted to them. And I just think it was a great, what a great testimony of a, a, a couple of people that that love each other and that love the Lord and that just want to serve him. And so God opened doors and they stepped through them. Verse three, so because he was of the same trade, this is Paul, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation, they were tent makers. Now that could be rendered, there's some hint of being leather workers in there, but this would not be, they would not be primarily leather workers. They probably used leather in the tents. Uh, we look at Simon the Tanner early in the book of Acts. He was a leather worker. He was a, he tanned hides and worked leather. And that's not the same word as used here, even though there's an allusion to leather being involved. So uh, what's interesting here is that it was customary for young Jewish men to be taught a trade, especially and even, well, even if, and especially if they were going to be rabbis that they were expected to go and to support themselves as they went through and they taught other Jewish men. So uh, Paul would have grown up in Cilicia and Cilicia was known, they had a reputation uh, for making tents from black goat skin. I, I can just, yeah, that's, that, just bless your heart with that little bit of information. But so he would have probably come by his trade pretty honestly. Um, 
And as soon as he arrived in Corinth, as I mentioned, he needed a job. Uh, we can assume that he wasn't making a lot of money on the ministry. <laughs> that wasn't, and obviously that wasn't his desire, but, uh, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, he needed a job, he needed a place to stay. And when he met this couple, they provided him with both. So verse four, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews, both Jews and Greeks. So with his physical needs being taken care of, in meeting up with Aquila and Priscilla, Paul was able to work during the week. He probably, they probably had an established business there because when he shows up in town, they're already doing it. So we can assume that either he went to work alongside them, but very likely went to work for them. Worked during the week and he began to show up at the synagogue on Sabbath to begin to present the gospel. Remember we've looked at that. He would take the, the, the tenets of the gospel and lay them down alongside the Old Testament scripture and demonstrate to them that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And so that's what he's doing. And he begins to do what he's becoming accustomed to doing by this point. Excuse me. He, what he's being becoming accustomed to doing as soon as he gets his physical needs squared away. Uh, yeah, he, he would begin to share with both Jews and Greeks, we're told here, uh, the Greeks would probably be the God-fearers. The, they were one, people that worshipped at the synagogue, even though they weren't Jews. They were they were Gentiles, but they were they were connected to the God of the Jews, and so therefore they were considered worshippers as well, even though they weren't technically Jews. They worshipped, and they were a, a, a sort of an extension of Judaism in that day. So. Verse 5, it says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So I got to looking at this and I thought, well, okay, why would that make a difference? And I looked at different translations and the New American Standard Bible has a much clearer translation of verse 5. Let me read verse 5 in the, in the NASB. It says, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So a couple of things about that. The reason for Paul's shift in emphasis here away from tent making and back towards evangelism, I think there's two reasons primarily here. And first is because Silas and Timothy had brought a gift from the church at Philippi. And this is when they showed up. When they showed up, they had a gift. And we see that in the book of Philippians. I'm not going to go there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul is reflecting back uh, to his time when he was in Corinth. And he said, and when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia, that's Silas and Timothy, they supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. So Paul is, again, getting out into the future and looking back on this time, he mentions that he had received from the the brothers when they came from Macedonia. Secondly, Silas and Timothy had brought word that the Macedonian churches were thriving. And I have to believe, especially after his time in Athens, that this is a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul is writing from Corinth and, and he says this to the Thessalonian church. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul was greatly encouraged. He writes back to the Thessalonians and talks about how encouraged he was. He's excited. The word of God has taken root in their hearts. Uh, They're growing in their relationship with Christ. And that had to be, again, he didn't have that great a time in Athens. And so coming and hearing about the work that was being done now, after he had to so hurriedly leave Thessalonica and hurriedly leave Berea, to hear now that the work had taken off and that critical mass had taken a, a life of his own, that the people were, were beginning now to grow in their relationship with Christ and that they understood that it wasn't just Paul visiting them, that it wasn't just Paul giving them a Bible study, but they were hearing from the Lord. And that would thrill him. I, I'll tell you what, nothing thrills me more than when I see somebody take off, they, they get a hold of the word of God. And, and, and I see them begin now to establish their own relationship with the Lord and, and to begin to take off and to become hungry for God. And that's what Silas and Timothy communicate to Paul when they get there. Verse six, but when they opposed him, this is the Jews now, he's at the synagogue every Sabbath. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. And from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. This is a bit of a scene. Now, I want you to understand what says when they opposed him, that's not just them saying, well, yeah, Paul, well, we don't agree. (laughs) It's not what, no, Luke uses a military term here. (laughs) It's about physical opposition. This is the, the word picture is sort of, it'd be like a line of soldiers lining up and saying, you're not going any further. We're opposing you. All right. So that's the sense that we get in this. So uh, this is a, it's a big deal. I mean, Paul, they are opposing him. Probably, apparently there was the tension had gotten to a point where Paul's confronted by a line of angry men that are blocking him from going into the synagogue. They opposed him. All right. That's the only thing I can conclude is that this opposition is there saying, no, you're not going, you know, it's sort of the over my dead body kind of a thing, you know? So uh, they evidently blocked him from entering, threatened him if he tried to pass. Yeah, well, go ahead, buddy. Go ahead and try. You know, <laughs> you see posturing like that. So Luke also mentions that they blasphemed. Uh, and he doesn't, Luke doesn't say how they blasphemed, but uh, we have to assume that in doing that, that they were just literally talking trash about the Lord Jesus. And uh, so that was significant. So, uh, and, and again, you know, you look at the Apostle Paul's life, especially in this journey uh, up until this point, these confrontations, violent confrontations, they had become all too common in his ministry. Uh, every time he begins to gain ground for the kingdom, the enemy comes in and we know that it's Satan because we've read that. We talked about that. Satan was the one that hindered him from going back to Thessalonica, even though it was the Jews, the unbelieving Jews that had opposed him. We know behind that opposition were the powers of darkness. So 
the other thing about this is since the men were Jews, Paul uses a Jewish symbol for rejection. It, it's, he shook the dust out of his robes, it says. Now, it's similar to what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. In verse 14, Matthew 10, Jesus says, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off of your feet. In other words, you're done. And Paul here, these guys, they say, you're not going any further. We're opposing you. We're standing against you. He says, fine, I'm done. Shakes the dust out of his robes. Now he adds a statement here. And I want to talk about this for a minute. It's important that we understand. He says, your blood be upon your own head. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, somebody told me that it would get my attention. Uh, he, he knew, but he knew because he knew that he's dealing with Jews here. He knows that they'll understand the gravity of the statement. He knows that that's a very serious thing to say. What he's making absolutely clear in this is that they, not he, were morally responsible for their decision to reject Christ. He's saying, look, I laid it out for you. Now what you do with it, your blood is on your own head. It's not on me. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 3, we see the Old Testament concept of blood guiltiness. And I, uh, again, uh, talk about the watchman. And, and where God instructs Ezekiel, he says, you know, if you see the enemy coming and you don't say anything, their blood's on your head. If you go and you warn them, what they do with it is what they do with it. You're, they're, you're clear. And so Paul is making an allusion to this. And they would understand exactly what he's saying. I want, I want to make that clear. They, these guys get it. All right. But there are some who would use this passage from Ezekiel in a legalistic way in condemning people that, in, in that sense in the church. I do not believe that the new covenant, the new Testament supports somebody else's blood being on my head. I think that flies in the face of grace. Now, let me explain it for a minute. And you might, and if you have a different opinion, that's fine. Please don't send me email. Uh, it's really okay. We can, we can all disagree. But I'll give you what I think is being said here. So although Paul saw himself as being, he did see himself as being a debtor to God. He said, I'm a debtor to God. I have to do this. And it wasn't that he was on some works trip paying it, trying to pay a debt. He knew that the debt that he owed could never be paid, nor can ours. But he did call himself a debtor. And so he said, I, I'm compelled to, to, to put the gospel forth. Um, I don't think it applies in the literal sense that God used with Ezekiel and him being appointed a watchman over the house of Israel. That's old covenant. And you got to remember in Ezekiel's day, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Uh, except in a limited sense to the prophets, where God would speak things to the prophets to speak to the people. Part of the Spirit's ministry is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay? There's not a person in this room who could produce that in somebody else. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not ours. Uh, there's not a person in this room who could bear that burden. No, that's, that's just I just don't see it. I believe Paul's point in this with the Jews at Corinth was that they would need to understand with knowledge comes responsibility. And this is important, folks. He'd shared the knowledge of Christ with them. And now it was their responsibility. 
And that's a fair statement, both then and now. That doesn't mean that somebody's blood is on your head. It means that as God opens the door for you to share the gospel, to share Christ, you have, yeah, there's a responsibility that comes with that. You share. Look at what Paul risked when he shared. Look at the things he goes through. And it's not saying that people are going to beat you up every time, but you know what? Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to pat you on the head and tell you how wonderful you are. There are only people that oppose you. But it's very important for them to understand, look, my responsibility is to share this with you. It's your responsibility what you do with it. That's the point. So uh, it's interesting too. It's just like he's saying too, if you don't want me speaking here in the synagogue, no problem. I'll go to the Gentiles. He doesn't waste time with people who are rejecting and I don't think that he was all ticked off and jacked up about it, but I think that he was very direct. He said, look, it's up to you. If you don't want to hear this, I'll go somewhere else, and I will, I will take this message to people that do. Uh, verse 7, he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> I think that's great. So he literally, he says, you don't want to hear it? Fine, I'm going next door. <laughs> so, and, and what's indicated in this is that there was a common wall. Uh, if you read this in other translations, it talks about the, there being a wall separating the synagogue and justice house. So he like goes from here to here. says, these guys want to hear what I've got to say. So I'll go there. He didn't have to travel very far uh, to share the gospel unhindered. Now, Something about this guy Justice. Many scholars believe that his full name was Gaius Titus Justice. Uh, and he's mentioned in a number of places. In Romans 16.23, when Paul is writing, he's concluding the Roman letter. He's writing it from Corinth. Uh, he talks about Gaius, his host. Uh, he says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church greets you. Now we know that the church here is in this guy's, uh, this guy Justice's house. Probably the same guy. Verse 8. Uh, then Crispus, the ruler, and it, Crispus, I don't know why I see the little Rice Krispie guys in my mind, but that's just me. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. So this whole bunch of people, I mean, it's probably a good sized Jewish household. Uh, they come to Christ. They, it says, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So a work of God, the Holy Spirit's being poured out. Paul says, you don't want to hear it? Fine. I'll take it to people who do. And the people do and they respond. So things are starting to get rolling here. Now in first Corinthians chapter one, Paul addresses the division that came up in the Corinthian church uh, with both Gaius and Crispus. Probably the same Gaius Titus Justice that we see here. Um, So uh, just backing up and kind of taking a summary look at what's going on here. The Jews get offended. They line up against Paul at the synagogue. Paul in turn moves the operation next door. At that point, Crispus, the the head guy in the synagogue and his whole family, they come to Christ. Now, it's pretty safe to say, to assume, Paul is not getting any more popular with the folks over at the synagogue. (laughs) Things are not, they're not liking it. 
So one can also assume that, that there were threats being made. I mean, they'd already threatened him. And that probably didn't stop. There was a certain amount of murmuring going on. I mean, yeah, you got to walk past these people to go, go to church. So, you know, and we'll see next week that the Jews, they, they continue to get more hostile. Uh, they try to bring Paul before the governing officials and it doesn't work out. But taking all of that into consideration, combined with Paul's recent history with the Jews in Thessalonica and Berea and elsewhere, it's not difficult to conclude that Paul's probably, he's probably walking around feeling like he's got a bullseye painted on his back. I mean, this guy is a target. And every time he begins to gain traction, to gain ground for the kingdom, again, the enemy's opposition starts to step up. And that begins to happen here. And that sets us up for what we read in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And he said, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Now this is a literal vision. All right. This isn't a dream. He has a vision. (laughs) It's very similar to what he had with the guy from Macedonia that said, come and help us. All right, so a literal vision, uh, and God has some things that he wants to say to Paul. The first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Literally, it says, stop being afraid. Stop being fearful. Now, you got to understand, Paul's not being paranoid here. He had reason to fear, and the Lord was aware of it. I mean, he's gone through a lot, as I mentioned. At this point in this journey, he's got to be getting tired. He's got, I mean, the stresses that he had endured were significant and many. Uh, it's interesting, too, <laughs> that God doesn't stop with telling him, I'm with you. He says there uh, in verse 10, he says, for I'm with you. He doesn't stop there, though, because Paul could, he could have thought, well, yeah, you were with me in Lystra. You were with me in Thessalonica. You were with me in Berea and in Philippi and Iconium. I mean, he got beat up in all of these places. And yes, God was with him and God allowed that. And we don't understand those things. We won't understand those kind of things until we're there in heaven with him. But God is very specific in telling him, not only am I with you, no one will attack you and no one will hurt you. Now, I can only imagine the relief that Paul would have had in hearing this. He'd been in bad shape. As we read again, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Paul is writing uh, from Ephesus. He's writing back to Corinth. And he reflects on this period of time. He's, he's reflecting on, this is when I first came. He says, in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, And I, brothers, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Uh, and I've inserted, yeah, I tried that with the Athenians and it didn't go so well. He says in verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, I've inserted, yeah, I didn't get that far with the Athenians either. He never brings up the cross. He doesn't get the opportunity to go that far into the gospel before he's dismissed. And so he gets to Corinth and he says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ Jesus and him crucified. He says, I'm going to keep the main thing 
the main thing. He tried the philosophical approach, and I think Acts 17 is beautiful, and it's theologically accurate, and it's wonderful. I'm, I'm not here to put it down. But I submit to you that Paul wrestled with it, coming off the other side. And by the time he gets to Corinth, he's fearful, he's trembling, he's worn out. He is, he's stressed. It doesn't mean that he didn't trust the Lord. It means that he was going through a really tough time in his life. And he confesses it to them when he writes back to them. Something I think is very significant in this is the Lord tells him, he says, I have many people in this city. Remember, this is the most corrupt and immoral city in the entire Mediterranean world. And God says, I have many people in this city. What's he talking about? Paul just, he just showed up. He just arrived. Is he talking about election here? I believe he is. And we're not going to get into the whole thing about uh, divine election and predestination and, and free will and all of that. Both of those apply. You've heard me, if you've heard my teaching much, you Uh, I absolutely believe that both concepts are taught in the word of God and that if you take one at the exclusion of the other, it doesn't work. Both are taught, both are true, and one falls apart without the other. Am I predestined? Yes, I am. Do I have something to say about it? Absolutely, yes, I do. And and yeah, again, I'm going to resist. We're running out of time. (laughs) But I think he is talking about election. And why is that significant? I believe the Lord's saying, I have many people in this city who have not yet come. So don't be afraid. Don't stop speaking. That's his point in this. He's he's telling Paul, don't stop. Keep going. I want to encourage you. Nobody's going to get a hold of you. It's going to be different here. And I think that there's some reasons for that as well. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, But significant. You know, God doesn't look at things the way we do. I think about the Samaritans. When when Jesus showed up in Samaria, he's there with his disciples. And and he sees this woman at the well and he goes, he dismisses them and says, go get lunch and come back. And they come back and they are thunderstruck. They are like, their mouths are on the ground that he's even talking to the Samaritan woman because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritan. They were bad people. You know, I, you hear me call Samaria the bad neighborhood in Israel. And, and that was because they had a reputation of being the bad neighborhood. That didn't bother Jesus at all. He consistently went to the downtrodden. He consistently went to the people that were marginalized. He consistently went to the people who slip between the cracks in society. And I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you know what? I died for those those Corinthians. I died for those heathens that are caught up in all of these crazy pagan practices. And I look out at our culture today, folks, and I think, you know, Lord, give me a heart for the lost, even if they are aggressively opposing the gospel. Give me a heart for the people that are, are, are doing evil things because I, I just, it, 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 and yeah, of course we call it out. I'm not saying that we endorse evil, but I am saying that Jesus went to people who were caught up in all kinds of trash. And that should be our heart as well. Because the only hope that they have is the gospel. God knew that. And so he said, Paul, look, I'm going to see to it that you're protected. 
in this moral wasteland that I've called you to. Why? Because I have a lot of people that need to hear this message. And I have a lot of people here. And so stop being afraid. Keep talking. Keep putting the message out there. You leave the results to me, by the way. And I'm adding that, but that's truly what God does. He says, you know, don't, don't you be worried about the results. You just be faithful with what I've called you to do. Verse 11, and then he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So I think there's another aspect uh, to Paul's not having to be fearful for those that were outside the church causing him harm. Uh, and that's this. Uh, think about it. Paul, <laughs> he's bringing the gospel to this really dark culture. You'd see over the next 18 months uh, that when people step out, step out of the darkness and, and into the light, uh, old habits and behaviors, they don't instantly often disappear. God is, Jesus is in the work of sanctifying us. Yeah, the moment that I give my heart to Christ, the moment that I, I respond to the gospel, I am declared clean, sinless, holy. And then God starts this work. So positionally, that's the case. Practically speaking, I got a long ways to go. And so do you. That's a process that will go for the rest of our lives. The Corinthians, he's going to have a lot of trouble with the Corinthian church. And and God said, you know what? I'm going to keep the trouble from the outside. You're going to have enough on your hands on the inside. And he would. He'd have a great deal of challenges. Uh, from the Corinthian church. The benefits we receive because of those challenges, because they're recorded for us, are many. Uh, just a wonderful, I, just a snapshot of the church at Corinth here, uh, Paul's work there. Uh, I think it's just a remarkable. This man shows up in town. He's beat up, beat down, exhausted, stressed out, worried, broke probably, uh, looking for work, looking for a place to stay, uh, discouraged. And God begins this beautiful work in what would many people would look at as a, a less likely place. So as we wrap up, I want to just look at three things quickly. Uh, first, is that there is little fruit doesn't mean that God is not working. Folks, as I shared with you about prayer at the beginning of the service this morning, God is working. And and one of the things that was said at the men's conference yesterday is that as we're committed to prayer and as we're committed to going about our Father's business, that waiting is an essential ingredient to understand that we wait for God to do what he's doing. Paul was waiting on the Lord here and uh, he didn't initially see much fruit. He didn't see much fruit in Athens. We don't even know if a church was started, established in Athens. We know later on there would be one, but there's nothing beyond those few people that respond to the gospel. There's nothing there. But God was doing some amazing and remarkable things inside of this man as a result of the things that he faced when he was in Athens. So that there was little fruit there doesn't mean that God wasn't working. He was working powerfully. You may be in a wasteland right now. You may be in a place where 
Maybe there's not a lot of fruit. I want to challenge you. Are you praying? Are you available for God to use? Are you in a place where you're saying, uh, Lord, take me. Use me. Pour me out. That's something that God continually challenges me on, and I, I pray that he challenges you. Don't worry about the results. It's not about, I'm going to have so many notches on my Bible. It's about, am I going to be faithful with what you've put before me? And that might be your family. That might be your work. That might be, and fill in the blank. God does want to use us. Another thing I want to talk about here is, uh, and you may have heard me say this before, uh, we can fall into, as Christians, we can fall into, I call it the black hat, white hat thing. Is that, well, we've got white hats, and all those creepy people out there have black hats. And we can start to, start to segregate people in our minds and put them in these nifty little columns that, you know, and yeah, and, and I can't spend much time watching the news without starting to do that. Folks, you've got to understand Paul's in this, he's in this moral cesspool, as I mentioned. He's in this culture that is just immersed in pagan worship, all kinds of terrible practices. Prostitutes literally roaming the streets every night, all night. I mean, it was a rough place. And God says, I have many people in that city. Don't get into that black hat, white hat. I've got a white hat and they've got black hats. And so therefore, you know, there's this sort of this class distinction thing that goes on. Understand and walk in the reality that were it not for the grace of God resting upon your life, we've all got black hats. Every stinking one of us. I don't care how much you give at the office. I don't care how much you do. I don't care how you volunteer. You know, it's all about God's grace. So be careful of that. God's value system is not the same as ours. And I praise God for that. The third thing is what are you burdened by? Paul was hitting burnout. I think that that's pretty clear. I look at what happened to him in Athens. I look at what he's going through here. And I look at the comfort that God brings. You know, I don't think he ever said, hey, I I burneth out, (laughs) King James. But I think it's pretty clear that he he was getting to a real tough place. Tough enough to where God had to come to him and say, look, I've got this handled. Nobody's gonna hurt you. I mean, looking back at his past history, he's probably thinking, okay, any day they're going to come after me and they're going to, I'm going to have to leave town again or they're going to succeed this time and they're going to come in the middle of the night and kill me because they had literally been trying to do that over and over and over again. What do you fear? What's pulling on your soul? Take the encouragement that the scripture gives. God is not far off. He sees what you're going through. And if there's a word that I have for the church this morning, is just take comfort. That might be tough. I've been down some tough roads, and I know many of you have been and are. He says, you know what? Don't be fearful. Don't be overwhelmed. Understand that I'm in control. It might not look like it. And at times it doesn't. But know that he is and that his love for you is great. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, just consider this brief look at the church at Corinth, I pray, Father, that for each one here uh, and within the sound of my voice, online, whatever, that you would bring divine encouragement to us that uh, our life is hard sometimes. It's just plain hard. 
And we see here a, a, a snapshot of the Apostle Paul and the difficulties that he faced continually. Lord, I pray that in his, in your encouragement for him, that we would find encouragement, that we would find rest in you, even if and especially when we're going through tough circumstances. So, Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each person here that you would bring encouragement, that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, and that in doing so, Father, that we would find rest, that we'd find peace, and that we'd find a respite in the middle of life's storms. We give ourselves afresh to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.